Hey, this is Joe Kelly, a writer of Spider-Man Deadpool, and you're listening to Amazing Spider-Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk. My name, as always, is Dan Gavazdan, and I am the editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between a fan and a bunch of creators as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. This episode is a special Spider Talk and their Amazing Friends episode from the Long Beach Comic Con 2015. In this episode, we'll be talking to writer Joe Kelly, writer of Amazing Spider-Man, Deadpool, and the upcoming Spider-Man and Deadpool book. As always, if you hear this sound, please be sure to check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. I have to say that just like the previous episode, Kyle, Amy, and I spent our weekend running around the Long Beach Comic Con trying to get interviews with the creators. Longtime listeners will know how much I adore the writing of Joe Kelly, particularly his Rhino story, which Mark and I discussed all the way back in our second Essentials episode. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I strongly encourage you to check it out before you listen to this interview. Anyway, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it was talking to Joe Kelly, who was more than giving with his time on the show floor and really provided us with some outstanding insider's knowledge of his time writing Spider-Man and on his upcoming work with Spider-Man and Deadpool. I hope you enjoy the interview, and be sure to tweet to Joe Kelly. Let him know that you enjoyed it. I know you're probably already tired of hearing me talk to myself, so let's get right to our interview with Joe Kelly from the Long Beach Comic Con 2015. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. This is Dan Gavazdan here with Amazing Spider Talk, and I'm at the Long Beach Comic Con, and I'm joined by Joe Kelly. So introduce yourself, Joe. Uh, Hi, my name is Joe Kelly. I'm part of Man of Action Entertainment. Uh, We're the creators of Ben 10, uh, the characters in the team for Big Hero 6. We do comics, we do animation, uh, we do film. Uh, I I wrote a comic for uh, Image called I Kill Giants. just announced that we're turning that into a film, which is very nice, uh, with Zoe Saldana, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and I, as far as comics, I've been in comics for like about 18 years. Uh, I wrote Deadpool for three years. Uh, I wrote Spidey for a year. I've written everything from Superman to Spider-Man, everybody in between. So I've been back and forth across the street as far as DC and Marvel uh, for a lot of my career. Great. Um, so uh, I guess the place to start talking about... Um 
is what it's like to be a part of the Spider-Man brain trust during the brand new day era. Uh, for my money, personally, I thought it was one of the most inventive and best times that the book has seen in, in quite a while, at least in this modern era of comics. Um, and a lot I attribute to a lot of your great writing for the year or two that you were on it. Um, how is it to work with part of this like rotating team? It was great. I mean, it's very kind of you to say that. Thank you. Uh, they were a really great bunch of writers. Um, Steve Wacker was running the room. He's an awesome editor. Like, I love Steve. Uh, we've worked with him subsequently in animation as well. Um, gosh, it, it, was, it was very easy because uh, some rooms you get into and there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of, um, you know, who, who's got the bigger web shooter? And uh, we had none of that. We had none of that. I mean, you had... You know, Slot is like the most enthusiastic guy ever in a room. He's awesome. Like, he loves Spider-Man. He loves these stories. And that enthusiasm I found infectious. Um, I'm trying to think of Bob Gale. You know, like, you look at Bob and he's like a classic and he's got all the best stories. And, you know, he's like really down-to-earth guy and tells all these funny Back to the Future things. Um, Guggenheim and I became friends in that room, you know, because of... Uh, the work that we did together. I mean, he really... You mentioned the Rhino story. That was originally a Guggenheim story. Um, and, you know, here's a guy who I'm like, you're, like, on TV and creating shows and movies. Total no ego. You know, it was just a great, great room. Um, Zeb. Zeb is hilarious. He's so funny. Um, I mean, I think him and I kind of started crossing paths closer to the end, but I, I love Zeb. So uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody from that time, but uh, it was just a great experience. It really was. Oh, wait... Mark Wade. Uh, Mark Wade and I have known each other for a very long time, and so to get to hang out with him is always a pleasure. So it was just, you know, it was such a good room, and um, and because I was very, very lucky in that the brand new day era had a lot of blowback, right? So everybody was all out of joint, and I came in about a year after that. So that that uh, acid had died down, and I was able to just start to get in and do work and have fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. So it's kind of like doing it like a TV show. You got like a, a group of writers and things like that. How was it uh, in terms of like what notes were you given and how did you personally handle this? The kind of juggling various plot lines um, and making sure things all sync up. I'm sure that's a work of the editor, but as a writer, you certainly need to be conscious of that. Yeah, well, uh, we'd all get together. I mean, just on a mechanics level, we'd all get together. We'd talk about what kind of stories we, we would think would be cool. Um, what did we want the shape of the book to be over the course of the year? Um, year and a half, whatever. Uh, Dan, I think it's fair to say, was really in the driver's seat um, in terms of having the longest-term plans. And uh, and we, in some ways, we were there to support whatever it was that he was sort of shooting for because, uh, you know, it's like it was a room of equals, but you knew that Dan was sort of the guy, um, which obviously he is, you know, like there's no question. Um, and so you would sort of block out, oh, we'd like to do this kind of thing for a year, like the gauntlet story or... And you'd get an endpoint, and then you reverse engineer, and then everybody starts kind of picking at the pieces. So, uh, you know, I love Craven, so I'm like, oh man, if I can do a Craven story, I'm there. You know, like that's cool. Rhino came up, and Mark was loving the Rhino story that we we all kind of cooked up together. That again, that that lack of ego thing. People were there to tell cool Spider-Man stories. So, uh, if if you came up with an idea, and I could run with it. That's what happened. Or if you came up with an idea and I added a little sprinkle to it, and it, it, you just gave that stuff away for free. It worked really well. And then Steve was there and Brevoort, and you know they would guide us to make sure that we weren't doing anything that would drive corporate insane. 
And um, and then you went off and wrote. Then you divvied it up and tried to make sure you got your stuff in on time. I'm, I'm surprised more series aren't handled this way, but I'm sure it nearly killed Steve Wacker yeah. in the process, <laughs> getting three books out a month. Um, yeah. Well, one of your first stories for the team was uh, Amazing Spider-Man Extra, number one, this strange offshoot series that I never quite understood where it was supposed to fit in with their, their strategy, but um, this one saw the uh, dramatic rebirth of Hammerhead with this, uh, uh, with this adamantium skeleton, uh, which is a pretty dramatic change for a villain. Um, and handled an issue that perhaps many might have missed, being an extra issue. Right. Um, uh, what was the thinking behind? What, what do you know about the thinking behind the extra series? And um, how do you handle updating one of Spider-Man's, you know, classic villains? Um, as far as the extra, I mean, they were just. Uh, well, I don't. I couldn't tell you. I would have to assume it was sort of a. Uh, a publishing strategy to just maximize on the amount of stories. I, I can tell you this: this they they knew from past experience, if you have amazing and spectacular and Peter Parker and all these kind of things, that those peripheral, quote-unquote peripheral books were not given the same eyeballs that amazing had. Even, like, just Spider-Man, you know what I mean? Like, it was, there was the main book. So the goal was always to make the main book as often as possible, even if it was different stories. So I would imagine that the extra sort of worked in that regard somehow. Like you know. today's point ones. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and then the approach of the classic villains, we that was one of our mandates from day one. Was that if we were gonna do Hammerhead, if we were gonna do somebody, anybody, um, what was new, what felt modern, what was an actual motivation other than I hate Spider-Man, you know? And so I happen to love, I kind of approach classic villains the same way all the time, or classic stories. I did the same thing on Space Ghost. Like, I know what I remember as a kid and what I felt as a kid. It's not accurate at all. Like, I remember Hammerhead was scary. Not like an idiot who ran into walls and was like, yeah, gangster, yeah, see? That was not my vision of... Well, he was of... inspired by a poster of a gangster that... Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. So, but in my head, he was he was messed up, and I don't I couldn't tell you off the top of my head which issues I read. I, I don't remember, but sure. he was a creepy dude. So I was like, there's got to be a way to make him scary as hell. And I think at the time, because Mister Negative was was like up and coming, and the sort of uh, the magia was was you know flaking out, to have a guy who could really get his hands dirty and up his game, so people didn't think he was a joke. That suddenly became a very interesting character for me, and I thought I could bring the fear that I remembered as a kid into a modern character. So that's what we tried to do, tried to do, definitely did it with the lizard, you know, the Zeb story with the lizard, like, that story, you know, we all agreed in the room, we were like, well, you know, the kid is always the problem, we get rid of the kid, you know, it was one of those kind of deals. Um, and that's what we wanted to do, just how do you shake these things up, um, try to give Electro, like, more of a real grounded reason ground it's not a pun um just <laughs> or is it <laughs> or is it uh, just so that it's not just i'm showing up to rob banks and hate spider-man uh, so speaking of classic villains you got to do one of the few recent norman osborne stories we haven't really seen much of him in a while um uh, and uh with american son um what are your feelings about norman osborne when he like at the time he was kind of an avengers villain how do you feel about that version of norman osborne and um what do you think makes him spider-man's greatest villain at least amongst fans 
Well, it, it was very cool to see that. I, had, you know, I obviously hadn't been in Marvel for a while, so to see where Norman had gotten to and Hammer and Shield and all that kind of stuff, I thought it was really cool. Um, I like seeing characters evolve, you know, uh, so long as it feels organic and it's um, it's been earned. You know, when you just arbitrarily flip a switch and, you know, whatever, Magneto's running daycare and you're like, what? I don't understand. That, that bothers me. Um, but I felt like they'd really earned Norman's place. So having him in such a, a position of power and then Spidey being Spidey, that disparity just makes for really great conflict. Um, and then getting to do American Son, I mean... Kind of the plan for American Son was a little bigger, I think, than we got to fully implement. Um, I mean, it was going to be, you know, I don't, I'm trying to remember how far we got in the story. I mean, Harry got did get into the suit. Um, you know, I love the idea of him sort of trying to craft, because he's always trying to craft Harry into something that he's not. That, probably more than anything, makes him... Spidey's worst villain, you know, because he gets at him on every gut level. Like, all the things that he has remaining that are available to him that are personal, Norman always finds a way to, like, get a knife under the fingernail, you know? Like, he can just pick at him so slowly. And then when he needs to, the hammer comes down and he can be a big badass. Um, they're also both smart. So this idea of, you know, the chess match between them is an ongoing, it's a never-ending thing. So I really liked, and I enjoyed writing Norman and uh, working with Phil is always, you know, incredible. Like, I mean, I love him to death. And he's so talented. Uh, so it was cool. And we were going to, I don't remember, they did it after me, but they did an American Son mini, right? And uh, I don't know if uh, if Glenn Stacy showed up, but I think it was Gabriel Gabriel Stacy okay, showed yeah. up. Yeah. So that was a plant that we had done. We had put this G Stacy guy just to sort of mess with people and then see if that would spark anything. So that was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I love Norman. I love Norman crazy, and I, I prefer him sane though. I prefer the sane but evil Norman Osborn. Um, that's the scarier. Well, he's there now. Um, what, what, I mean, one last thing about this story, you know, you kind of got to execute on a long-running Just Hang story in your first time writing for Amazing Spider-Man proper. What was it like coming in on this book and writing the end to this long, gestating storyline? Uh, you know, it, it feels kind of seamless. So it's one of the nice things you you do enough of this work. Um, you Your job is to jump in, like... These, I mean, arguably, these characters have been around already, you know, I mean, and truthfully, not even arguably, 40, 50 years, right? So you're always just adding to the mythos, and you're adding to whatever the last reboot was, you know, and so to be able to step in at that time, for me, it's it's very comfortable. And again, in a supportive room with good leadership and all that kind of stuff, it, it works out very, very well. So I, I loved it. It was no problem. In um, Amazing Spider-Man 606, you brought back Felicia Hardy um, as the Black Cat, and she kind of took a little bit more of a villainous turn in your story, and now, readers now know that she's kind of gone full villain in, in the book. What is your... Um, and it's met some kind of... People have not really taken to that this turn for the character, but I'm curious, you wrote a kind of villainous story with Felicia Hardy. What is your take on the character? So Black Cat... Black Cat's always held like a warm spot in my heart for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, she popped up when I was reading Spider-Man kind of religiously. Um, I, you know, I thought she was sexy. I thought she was interesting. I mean, I thought she was a fun character. And I liked what I wasn't reading Batman. So, like, whether or not she was Catwoman didn't bother me. You know, like, I just liked who she was. 
And so to bring her back in and to try to set up a dynamic like that where she, she's been through the ringer, she's kind of ticked off, um, she's not going to be so much the reluctant hero and a little bit more like, yeah, this is me, take it or leave it. I like that character. Um, I know you asked me something else about her. I'm trying to remember. What well, about your your take on the character and like you know writing a villainous story with her and I mean really I'm curious if you feel like she's gone full villain now. Is that something that she's capable of? A lot of people have been. She's always been teetering on that line, but to see her go that far has been very almost like a shock to some right, readers. Right. So I'm curious. Do you do you think that that is an an accurate not to like dish on another writer, no, but yeah. you know. Uh, Tell us about your, your feeling about that, I guess. Uh, oh, this is... Yeah, I know what I was going to say. So, so Black Cat, I think, it always had the potential to go one way or another. I mean, I, I feel like I remember stories where she sort of did... Usually because it was, like, fake or she was driven nutty or whatever. But where she swung to the other side and was, was a villain. Um, but she needs something... She always needs something more even in the new continuity, to compete with the other women in Peter's life, you know? And when it was her versus Mary Jane, you know, as, like, polar opposites, and Mary Jane was sort of the safe, you know, we are married and all that kind of business, going back. And then you introduce Black Cat as a temptation, and still she's fun, and she's not even... You know, that was a really good character dynamic. Once, once Spidey's kind of alone again... She's got to have a little some more oomph, you know. Otherwise, you go, why don't you go out with the black hat? <laughs> like, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, so, for her to go, like, full villain, A, I trust the writers. I trust Dan. I'm, I'm sure if there's a plan, you know, there's a reason that he did that. Um, and there are so many uh, women in the Spider-Verse now. It's interesting to see how they're all going to work together. Um so you want to you want to put them on different points of the spectrum, you know. So so to have her take that role for a little while, I, I have no problem with that. I think it's I think it's going to be cool. I, t- it, uh, I mentioned it before off mic, and I have to say now there's no way I can talk to you without gushing about your Rhino story, no. your two part Rhino story. Can you tell us about uh, how this? And listeners have heard me talk about it for probably too much time. Um, but uh, can you talk about the crafting of this story, where it came from, and maybe the decision to make it a two-parter and then spread out over the months that it was spread out? Sure, yeah. Um, like I said, we you know we would bat a lot of stuff around the room, and when we knew we were doing the gauntlet and we were setting up the, the return of the old villains, um, Rhino came up, and I guess we were sort of looking at The Wrestler, the, the movie, the Aronofsky film. And um, we're like, ah, oh, man, just to see this old guy, like, he's sort of teetering on burnout. And we were riffing on that for the rhino. Like, because obviously some of the characters sort of quote-unquote age and some of them don't. You know, it, you sort of play what, what works best for the story. So that was what Mark had latched on to, Guggenheim. And so we cooked up this story that was sort of about the old rhino and what you know he was going through as a guy who was trying to maybe do better and for some reason got pulled back over and then mark got busy and was unable to do it and i i'd like dove right now i was a complete vulture on it i was just like oh i would do that story you know because i could see it and at the time i was working with max fiumara um on four eyes and it was a great opportunity to you know try him out for a couple of issues and i knew he would slay it like Max is so talented, and one of the things he does so well is, is emotion. I mean, uh, you know, in Four Eyes, 
I love what he does with the dragons. I love what he does with the city. The atmosphere is always so strong, but the acting is is impeccable. And we knew that for this we needed strong acting. So we got him on, and um, and then it was just introduce a, a really hopeful guy that, that Peter could get behind. And then we put air in it so that you would think, oh, that's just a new status quo, and you're just going to let it go. And then yank the rug out from under you a couple of months later, just when you thought, like, oh, I guess this will just be a subplot. Like, who cares? You know, you, you thought it was just going to kind of simmer. And uh, we really wanted it to be a one-two punch. And at, at one point it was going to be, you know, uh, consecutive weeks. But I think rightfully... Uh, the decision was made to give it a little gap because it, it felt so unexpected, like that second part. Um, I think really surprised people, which is great because it's a, it's such a simple story. Um, and that really helped, I think, giving it that extra time. The thing that really killed me about it is that Oksanka character, she appears fully formed in the book and, like... Which is rare, I, I feel, in, in superhero comics, that someone just comes on the screen. And you're used to this revolving door of characters, but this seemed like something special. And to have her just killed off, I, I, I was heartbroken. Right, right. You know, like, and, and in a way that I didn't think was possible anymore for me reading these comics for all, whatever, 50 years. Not that I've been, I'm 50, but like, I've read every right. issue. And, you know, at, at a certain point, you become jaded about it. But, like, right. this is a character that really meant something it seemed and and yeah what a tragic way to go no thanks uh, it, uh, you know uh, you know in writing we often call those you know they're straw man characters right you build them up to knock them down and um and that was a fear is that that's how it would have come off you know that it would have just been like oh she's a throwaway something bad's gonna happen but i think because we went to great lengths and, and again i i credit max with so much of this you really really want to see you know alexi let it go. Like, I'm not going to be the rhino. I, Especially because that's so rare for Spider-Man's villains. And yeah. he very rarely takes that route of saying, why don't you try doing something else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so so Peter's buying it. We're buying it. The rhino's buying it. Like, everybody just wants it to happen. And the, the psycho rhino just won't let it go. And he could have it. He's like, take it. That's, that's really tragic. I mean, like, it, it sets a stage for the kind of um, incomprehensible tragedy you read about in the news, you know, where it's just like, well, I don't know, why did that guy go nuts and kill that person, or why did something bad happen? Obviously, you know, completely just in a, in a different context. I'm not trying to uh, equate a comic book story with real life, but it's it's that fear that I think we tapped into with that story, or that's what I was hoping, you know, uh, because you really like her, and she doesn't take crap from him, and she stands up to him, and she's very strong, and and knows everything about him. She just accepts him whole cloth, and that's also kind of rare. She has no agenda other than to love this guy. Um, so then to see that crushed is just devastating, you know. Uh, and I say that with, like, a smile on my face, because these guys know I'm, like, a sick, demented person. But I, uh, I like, you know, you want to torture your characters. I mean, it's been said many times by writers better than me. I mean, it's you want to put people through the ringer. You know, and then and then again, like you add, add Max to that equation, and it's just like, oh my God! I mean, I, you know, I, I saw those pages, and I was getting weepy reading those pages. You know, and I wrote the damn thing, and then, but you see it, and you see Max, and the way he draws her, and, and you're just like, I can't believe this happened. You know, it's great. And then for for Alexa to give up, quote unquote, give up, like he has no choice. He gets pushed into that corner. That's heartbreaking in a different way. You know, he really had a chance to step away. 
Um, so yeah, so I, I'm very proud of that story. I'm really, uh, I, I've thanked Mark a number of times uh, for being too busy because um, I'm very proud of it. Um, you might not want to uh, reveal this as a, as a writer, but when I read the story, I really get there's a lot of uh, dialogue around rebirth and and, a, and distilling a character down to its core, and this kind of new replacement coming in, and like how if he kills his woman, it will free him up to be the rhino again. And in many ways, that parallels what had been done to Spider-Man with the whole one more day and brand new day thing, the removal of his woman so that he could get back to being the core character that he was. It seems such like an like a intentional thematic choice. Was that part of your thought process of make, doing a commentary on the character's rebirth through brand new day? Or is that just me reaching too far? No, that's a good question. I... I think it's definitely fair to say that all those themes are there because what it was a commentary on what we were doing with the villains. You know, we, we definitely wanted to keep at least one of them pure. So the idea of this, you know, we the hope was that the setup would be you would read this and go, oh, this, this new rhino is going to obliterate that old rhino and we're going to have a new rhino. That was the hope. Because we had been doing some things and some of the changes we made were drastic and some of them were, you know, were tweaks and simple, but we were making a lot of changes. So to wind up with that rhino in that suit where you see the face and, you know, the, the sort of quote-unquote corny rhino suit, but drawn by Max, it looks and scary as hell. And not corny at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you totally buy it. Um, that was, I think, the at, at the very least, the surface level of that stuff, just to make a commentary about what we were doing ourselves. But I don't remember, I can't honestly tell you... Uh, I would love to say, yes, clearly, it was a subtext, and I meant to... You could say that and look really smart. Yeah, I know, exactly. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I was that smart. Um, no, because by that point, for me, and, and having talked to, to Joe Casada about it and all that kind of stuff, like, the brand new day of it all, I just understood functionally why it needed to happen. We had gone through that in Superman, uh, where it was like, they're married, what do we do, how do we get... You know, like, it was... It's a challenge because you know you need to move out of that status quo, but you, you're not going to do it without breaking a lot of eggs and making a lot of people upset. You're either killing the person, you have to engineer a divorce. You, like, it's all this weird stuff. And so, you know, sometimes you need a magic wand to make it happen, and you just have to go, hopefully people will be here in a year, you know. So that, wasn't, that didn't really bug me, like, by the time I was in it. Um, and like I said, I was past all the vitriol. You know, people were on board again. Um, so, yes, I would love to say that I had some really deep, cool subtext, but, uh, yeah, not so much. I don't, I don't know if you have an insight, but you saying that made me think about, you know, we had a newly single Peter for a while, but even for a couple of years into Brand New Day, there were he never really went on dates or really dated any anybody. I mean, there were flirtations with Carly Cooper and Liz, uh, Lily Hollister would, like, randomly kiss him and create some tension with Harry, but there was not a return to kind of swinging Peter, if there was ever really a swinging Peter in the right. first place, other than in his costume, pardon the awful <laughs> pun. But um, yeah, was there an intentional kind of, like, let's let this boil down before we try to set him up with somebody else? I, I think so. I mean, I when I came into that... Um, that was that would have already been established, you know, that because I already came in like a year later. So I feel like it was, um, you know, like the introduction of Nora for me. Like I like Nora as a character. She was never really going to be a love interest, but she was going to be on the periphery just in case, um, maybe be interested. You know, like 
we wanted I wanted her around to potentially fill those roles and to be like a really fun friend for Peter. You I know. miss Nora. I thought oh, she was thanks. a great character, but she hasn't really surfaced much recently. Yeah. You know what happens? What happens a lot of times is, especially if you're only on for a little while, um, if you create a character like that, the other writers, out of respect, kind of feel like it's not theirs to play with because it's it's not a super villain. It's not, um, you know, oh, I created a new hero, whatever. It's like your weird little thing. And uh, this happened, has happened numerous times throughout my career where it's like, oh, whatever happened to that character you introduced in JLA or whatever. It's like, well, it's not that people hate it or whatever. They just, they would rather make their own person for that role. Um, but I'm glad you like, I, I love Nora. I thought she was funny. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it was a very conscious effort to like let it sit for a little bit because that brand new day stuff was so big that it was it was as if they got a divorce or whatever. And it's kind of like, how quickly could you get back into it? And Peter, on a subconscious level, had to know, like, I can't get back into this. I can't open myself up to that romantic, you know, those romantic impulses for a while. So, and I don't think he was, there maybe was a time where he was kind of super swinging Peter, but I don't think so. I think I'm with you. Like, he was always, he was one of these guys that like, oh, some girl likes me, I'll follow her around. Like, oh, two girls like me? Right, exactly. Well, yeah. Parker Luck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if only we could all have the Parker yeah, Luck, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, especially with those two beautiful women. Right. But, or, well, cartoon women. But <laughs> <laughs> some of us might have a relationship with cartoon women that we're unwilling to we're, admit. We're getting into deep territory. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's funny you say that because I feel it's one of the few times we've really gotten a real psychological bead on Peter. I think having the weekly schedule, you could really take the time to do yeah. a lot of Peter Parker moments and, and it's something I miss as well. Like, really, I felt like he was a really alive person and with a, a, a psychology I could keep up with. Um, just speaking of deep psychology, your next story was The Grim Hunt, um, which was the real, like, coup de grace of the whole brand new day uh, uh, story. Um, what was it like doing this tale, first of all, closing off the, the gauntlet, but also bringing back a character that had been killed in what's regarded as like the best Spider-Man story ever, yeah. you know, and that nobody wanted to see return, like one of the best villain deaths ever. That must have been a huge weight on your shoulders to get yeah. it right. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, you you nailed it. It was. Uh, I love. I love that story. Craven's Last Hunt, and I mean, I've reread it a ridiculous amount of times, and then especially when we were going to do that story. And again, there's parts of it that you remember in a different way than it actually is. You know, like, I forget the vermin part of it, and then you reread it, like, oh, vermin? You know, like... What's he doing Right, here? exactly. <laughs> but but Craven needing to break the spider and all this kind of stuff, but unable to kill him and all all that sort of stuff to become the spider, That all that psychology is so unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I mean, Dematis killed it. I mean, it's such a good story, and that's why it lives, you know, right? It is why we think so fondly of it. Um, so yeah, I was I was very scared, and I and we knew it was kind of ballsy, and and uh, Phil uh, had done Phil Jimenez had done all this research into the Kravinov family, and they had built all those characters up over the course of time, and so it was a way to also like call that herd and go who's really going to be the new Craven like. It could have been one of those children and offshoots and all that kind of stuff, but for a while they really teased uh, Anna Craven, right? Yeah, yeah, and we thought it, you know, and we all liked that stuff. I mean, but then it just seemed there's there's a way to to bring him back that feels very epic and appropriate for the character and sort of you know like ludicrous in the good way, you know, like that 
because, I mean, he's always had kind of an association with magical stuff, uh, all the mysterious tribes he visited in his life and all that kind of stuff. And, and in Craven's Last Hunt, there is a, it's really in the writing, but there's that magic, there is a magical feel, even though nothing magical is happening. You feel like he's making a spiritual connection, even if he's having a psychotic break. So the hope was that it would be a mirror and that it, it would kind of reflect all that stuff, even though we were, we were undoing it. Um, and the hope was then that we undid it in such a way that he didn't want it. I mean, that was the thing that I, I thought was the good twist. Was I that, thought that was, when that happened, I was like, I'm solving the story. Good, yeah, because that was the goal. Because we knew, it was like, again, it's acknowledging, like, no, being a fan, right? So I didn't want to bring him back on the one hand. So I'm like, well, let's acknowledge that. So Craven's like, I was finally at peace. Like, you goddamn people, what the hell's wrong with you? And now the only way I could ever go is to get rid of him. Like, and now he's got a connection that is very specific and very deep and all that kind of stuff. Even though he has respect for Spider-Man at that point, like all those things, you know, like it. So uh, it was it was very cool. Like, I, I love doing that story. You, you also pulled off an amazing end of the Kane storyline before they brought him back again. But, like, if he had just died right then and there, I would have been like, great, book right. closed. Right. You know, but that's never the case in comics. Obviously, we're talking about Craven coming back. Right. But, like, I thought that was a beautiful moment with him impaled on that stick up on the wall. Great. No, great thanks. stuff. Well, yeah, and, and to be fair, I, I, I had had plans to bring him back as well. We were gonna, um, we were gonna bring him back as a tarantula. He was gonna be a new tarantula, um, and totally revamp and all that kind of stuff. Um, With the pointy shoes? Yeah, oh, I, I happen to love the pointy shoes, but no, he was gonna just be a really messed up, nasty thing. But, uh, but yeah, I, it would it would have been a cool way to end that story too. But that stuff is it's funny for all the. Um, it's, it's like a lot of things. You can look back in the history and go, oh, I, I can make fun of that. Or while it was happening, it's like, oh, clones, whatever, people out of joint. But then it becomes part of the lore. Like, then you live with it long enough, and it's like, oh, I actually, you know, kind of people do care about Ben Riley and they do care about Kane. And, and they are interesting if you give them their due, you know? And I thought that was a character we could do that with. There's a very strong pull towards bringing Ben Riley back. So let, me, let me talk to you about another character that you're famous for writing, which is Deadpool. Sure. And in one of my favorite comics ever, Deadpool number 11, and you took Spider-Man back to meet Craven again <laughs> um, in Amazing Spider-Man number 47. What was it like writing this kind of weird time travel? I've never seen it done in really any other Marvel book. Right. And you just made fun of Stan's writing style. And <laughs> I mean, like, just so, that was such a hilarious book. What was it like writing that issue? So, um, yeah, Eleven was great. Uh, we, um, Matt Idelson and I talked about the idea of, do, of Forrest Gumping, uh, you know, Deadpool into a Spidey story. Uh, we cleared it with Stan, um, which was a little nerve-wracking. He was like, yeah, sure, go for it. And then after the fact, he read it and wrote a, a really nice note that he laughed and thought it was funny. So that was, that was a huge relief because I was like, this could be the end of my career at Marvel uh, for this one silly story. But, um, yeah, Pete Woods worked really hard compositing, you know, the characters back into the original art. Um, we just had so much fun. And, and to be allowed to do it, you know, Deadpool at that time, we still thought, ah, this book is never going to last. So nobody was paying attention to what we were doing. It was yeah. like, all right. And 11, we figured we'd make 11 a special issue. I don't know why. Like, we just kind of <laughs> arbitrarily picked it. Um, 
but it's it, a prime number. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just found out that in Germany they celebrate the double digits, not like the zeros and the fives oh, and really? stuff like that. So I like that. I because I just turned forty-four. Somewhere so I'm they're like, having a Deadpool there. party. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, so uh, so yeah, so it was just awesome. I mean, it was just a, it was such a fun story to do, and I mean, the Great Lakes Avengers are so ridiculous, and and Blind Al was always Aunt May just evil you know like was sort of the thing so to have her in there and we picked that specific issue and I'm pretty sure Idelson was the one who found it uh, it was definitely Idelson um, exactly for that scene where Mary Jane walks into the house and they're like hey could you help us move and she's uh, you know we have heavy boxes or something and she's like yeah sure and then the next panel she's like listen to those funky beats and she just starts dancing and we're like, what? This girl's on drugs. Like, this is insanity. <laughs> so that was that was those panels really made us go. Oh, this is going to be this is ridiculous and fun. Um, so yeah, we had a great time, and I didn't get fired, and uh, and Stan uh, Stan thought it was funny. So it was it was a very cool thing to get to do. And then it was it was funny. I just recently was like looking at Wikipedia entries about like. Deadpool characters, you know, as a sort of refresher to get back into the head for the book. And I forgot that, like, that was the story that ruins Weasel's life and sets him off on the on the path of being a drunk. And I was just like, all right, this is a good story. So it was, it was a really good time. So you just mentioned it. You've got a Spider-Man slash Deadpool uh, book coming up. Uh, what can you tell us about this book? Uh, what are you allowed to tell us about this book? Oh, I'll tell and, you everything. <laughs> great. Although this helps too, is we want to enjoy it. Yes. But also, um, uh, can we expect any crazy, like, genre-breaking stories like that again? So, it's funny. The Seagull just asked me, and it totally stressed me out. He's like, what sort of complete new innovation are you going to bring to Deadpool this time? And I was like, oh, don't you put me under pressure now. Um, first off, it's just totally fun having these two guys together. The biggest challenge I mean I love them both and I want to give them like equal screen time my natural sense of humor is more Deadpool in their current status quo especially because they're they're different obviously after the summer um, and uh, and so then the challenge is to, to make sure that Spidey's not always like the straight man and Deadpool's the, the you know the comedy foil so I'm very conscious of how it swings back and forth, almost from episode to episode, or issue to issue, um, who's the lead, you know? But there's, uh, I, I think there's some good shockers in it. Like, it opens it opens pretty strong. Um, there's reasons why these guys are together. You know, I think it's, I think it's pretty common knowledge that Spidey is not a fan of Deadpool's. Is this going to be an in-continuity Spidey? Like, is he going to be Parker Industries' playboy or whatever we're going to get this right. fall? Yeah, he, it's in-continuity. Um, it, it's one of those, uh, it's tangentially in-continuity because I think by nature of uh, working with Ed and, and myself and schedules and stuff like that, we knew we couldn't be month-to-month tied. And, and that would have just been a mistake, I think, for us anyway. It's kind of like... Um, other team up books where it's important to acknowledge what's going on and integrate it but you can't be beholden to it because it's just too challenging to with two books especially you know I mean I went through that with JLA where I mean then it was six or seven characters and I was like I really have to worry about what's happening in Batman and Aquaman you know like it was crazy um, so is this an ongoing or a mini uh, for me there's a long chunk of it um, I, I plan on doing it for, for a while. Um, 
I, I could not tell you what the overall plan is. I get if it does well, maybe it'll be an ongoing. <laughs> um, but my plan is to be on it for uh, for a while, you know, for at least a solid year, um, which I'm really really pumped about. And it's great to work with Ed again, and um, and Ed has just uh, improved as an artist over the course of time. I mean, he's grown, um, and he was already good. So it's really cool to see like new Ed, you know. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun exploiting their new, the new status quo, like playing Deadpool as a married guy. And what does that really mean? And especially in the in, in Deadpool terms, you know, like I don't think I think they have a very clear, interesting, open kind of agreement to their marriage. That's my take on it. I'll let somebody else judge that, but. Uh, you know, she's like a demon queen, you know. You, it's got to be like, oh, I understand human nature a little bit. Um, we have a lot of... Uh, it's a great opportunity to sort of pick at people in the Marvel Universe, which is really fun. Um, Deadpool's in so many unique positions now in the Marvel Universe, a- as is Spidey. You know, like that. the, the new Spidey status quo is, is very interesting, gives us a lot of opportunities to play as well. But really the focus is, is on these two guys... You know, I, I, without trying to sound dated, it's like the best of the buddy cop, you know, movies that you know from the '80s, and but done in such a way where they're both the weird, funny one, and really, what makes them different and what makes them special, and can they ever really get along? Is there a relationship there, or is it they're just stuck? You know, and uh, that's a lot of fun to play with. I mean, I think it's it's a very though there's, there's definitely a plot and there's you know. A lot of shenanigans, big superhero stuff. It's really about these two guys who want to be buddies. One of them especially. Deadpool really likes Spider-Man. Um, and Peter wants to see the best in Deadpool, but has only been shown crap. Like, can he, you know, is his faith going to be misplaced? Does he have faith in him at all? You know, these are the questions that I'm kind of trying to wrangle for the characters. And, um... I think it's. I think it's going to be pretty cool. I think there's some cool surprises. Um, as far as weird conventions and stuff like that, uh, nothing. Nothing that I could sort of openly say, um, or that would even make sense. I think it'd sound more writerly and. We'll just artsy have to check artsy. back in with you later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll tell me like in a year, like, oh, that time when you all the subtext about the rhino came back. Uh, then it also it'll make sense <laughs> for the two people that were looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, it'll come full circle. Um, yeah, there's some, there's definitely, and and also there's an interesting challenge. And this is not any kind of telling tales out of school. It's just a natural part of the job. You know, Spidey is Spidey, Deadpool is Deadpool. They do attract different audiences, so you have to modulate. Like if it was a Deadpool book that Spider-Man showed up in, but nobody, like, Spidey wasn't on the title, you could do a lot different than having Spider-Man on the, on the cover, you know what I mean? So, uh, but that being said, that's a good kind of restriction. You know, it just makes you go, okay, it's going to be less of this kind of humor and a little more thoughtful character humor, uh, which is fine. You know, like, I like that challenge, and, yeah, I feel like I'm up for it. And they're characters that I love. So, I mean, you know, it's funny. It's, um, it, it, it is kind of like those bad parents you see that put their kids in a room to settle an argument by fighting one another and then it gets on the internet and CPS takes them away that's kind of how I feel about this book I'm like I love both these guys and uh, but I have to make them like kick each other's asses all the time to just get to 
yeah, we can, you know, get a cup of coffee or whatever it is that I need to do. It's bigger than coffee, but... Well, I know, given your history with both characters, we're all really excited to, to read the book when it comes out in November, October? Uh, end of the year is what I, I know. That's what I think they've said. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to finish with uh, the question we ask all the creators who've worked on Spider-Man uh, that have been on our show is, uh, what does it mean to you that you've been able to write Spider-Man as a career? Like, What does it mean to you, the character, just that you were, wrote Spider-Man? Right. Uh, it, I mean, it, it, at the risk of sounding fanboyish or pandering or anything like that, I really, really loved Spider-Man. Like, he was always my favorite growing up. I had, you name it, I had it. I had the underoos. I had the rubber glove web shooter that was water. You, like, pumped water in it that you ordered from the back of a comic. Uh... I had a Spider-Man mood ring. Like that's I'm like going back deep. All this stuff you could buy in the back of Marvel Comics. I just love Spider-Man. And I mean, he was such an early influence in my life. Like he was on the Electric Company, right? So this is something I watched as like a super young kid. Morgan Freeman narrating bits of the Electric Company. Very weird. But I loved that cartoon growing up. That the Spidey cartoon, totally influential for me. So when I got the chance, the first time I ever wrote him was way back in the day on like a web spinner's arc, and I thought that was like the best, and I thought it was probably the best I was ever going to get. And then to get to work on the main book, it really was a dream come true. Like I say that with no exaggeration. It was a, it's a career highlight um, to get to work, and the artists I got to work with on that arc were just all top notch, and all the like I said all the other writers. It was a dream job. It really was, and um, had life been a little different. You know, I'm very happy with our success and what we have to do at Man of Action, and we're, we're busy in the best possible way, so it only allows for very limited um, bandwidth for mainstream comics. If I lived a slightly different life, I'd still be writing Spider-Man. There's no question. No question. Um, I just, well, you'd I love have to song. wrestle it away from Dan Slott yes. first. Dan and I would, I would, there would be a death match involved, um, but I would, I would definitely, I would definitely do everything I could to be around that character because I love him so much. Um, so to get to do it again, even, you know, in, in our weird little pocket of Spidey Deadpool, it's, it's the best. It really is. Well, great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's only my pleasure. Thank you. I'm, I appreciate it. It's nice to have like a, a, a long chat, you know, even and, and worked out well. It wasn't too busy. So I'm sorry for all the interruptions. <laughs> well, thank you again. Sure. Thanks. Spider-Man and his amazing friend. Well, again, I want to thank Joe Kelly for being on the podcast this week and for sharing all those awesome stories with us. Be sure to check out his upcoming Marvel work with Spider-Man Deadpool and his work with his company, Man of Action. Next week, we'll be talking to writer Joshua Hale Fialkov about his work on the various Spider-Man comics over the years, as well as his decision to leave writing for the big two, that's Marvel and DC, for independent publishing. It's a great interview, and I know you guys are going to love it, so we'll see you next week with that.
In the meanwhile, I wanted to take this moment to address a couple things people have been sending me emails about that would probably go unaddressed during these interview episodes. The first thing I wanted to talk about was to thank everyone who bought a t-shirt over the past month. Several of you have written in asking me when the t-shirts would arrive, and I have to say that it should be arriving any day now. I'm not personally sending them, but they went into production and were shipped starting on September 8th. So no matter when you've ordered, that's when they started to be processed. I know several people have already received theirs, so when you get yours, don't forget to send a picture to AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com. Another question I've gotten several times is about our essentials list and where listeners can find it. I will say that Mark and I do have complete lists of all of our essential choices, but we want it to be a bit of a surprise, so we're going to be announcing them as we do them. When we're finished, we'll be putting the list together so you can vote on your favorites and help us compile our final list. But that's going to be a ways off. We have a list of about 30 essentials we want to cover, and we've only done eight so far, but 15 of them are going to make our final list. Either way, we're going to be talking about Sensational Spider-Man Annual number one in a couple weeks. So if you want to get prepared for that discussion, be sure to read it and send us an email with your thoughts about whether it should be essential or not to AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com. Or, you know, you can always hashtag us okay to print and send it to us on Twitter. As always, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and old Superior Spider Talk podcasts at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. It looks like iTunes randomly decided to add all our old episodes back this week, so you can find all 86 episodes of our show on iTunes as we begin our march towards our 100th episode extravaganza. we got some great plans for that 100th episode, so uh, I think you guys should be getting excited about it, but we're still about 14 weeks off, so uh, don't get too excited just yet. Also, be sure to check out both of our Facebook pages at facebook.com slash superior spider talk and chasing amazing because they're great places to keep up with us in between the shows. And uh, today I put up a couple of free digital comics codes. So uh, there's always stuff like that to look forward to. And as always, if you want to follow the adventures of Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales, especially when their books relaunch later this month, be sure to subscribe to our sister podcast, The Ultimate Spin, hosted by Brian, Kyle, and Noor. And as always, our theme song is courtesy of Ryland Bojack, and our outro song comes from Magic. I would be remiss if I didn't thank Nick Cagnetti, Ray Sumzer, Ron Friends, and Sal Buscema for all of our show's amazing artwork. Of course, you can follow my Spider-Man writing at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or follow me on Twitter at AtSupSpiderTalk. And I know you can always follow Mark's exploits at AtChasingASMBlog. He's going to be tweeting a lot about the Mets, I suspect, in the next couple weeks. Anyway, as always, as Mark's very much alive Uncle Ben is known to say, with great podcasts must also come Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah. <laughs>